Well, you know, usually stores start thinking about Christmas between Labor Day and Halloween, but here we usually wait till the Sunday after Thanksgiving. And so today we're going to start our Christmas series. And over the next five weeks, we're going to look at some passages from Isaiah chapters 1 through 12. The first two of which are just very famous texts that speak to us powerfully about the character of God. And then the last three each contain really important prophecies about the coming of the Christ, and uh, they were fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. Now today we're going to just start at the beginning. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 20, which as Sal read to you, it's a pretty solemn text, and I thought he did a great job of giving us the gravity of that text as he read that. And this passage really summarizes the major theme of Isaiah's ministry, and it's really the theme that runs throughout Isaiah chapters 1 through 5 most uh, significantly. And that theme is this, we must turn in repentant faith to God or we will perish. And that's what we're going to see today in four points. First, we're going to see the stupidity of sin. Second, we're going to see that sin leads to the sorrow of judgment. Third, third we're going to see some reasons that God judges. And then fourth, we're going to see that God graciously offers an alternative to judgment. But before we jump into all that, I want to just take a moment and look at the very first verse of this book. If you have a Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 1, and verse 1 reads, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now this verse tells us four things. First, it tells us that the rest of this very long book is a prophecy. It its contents were a revelatory vision that came from God that disclosed many things, including some things about the future. Second, this vision was given to Isaiah. We'll learn more about Isaiah in coming weeks. But for now, let me say he was a godly man and he was a prophet. He spoke for God and it was his job to reveal to his society what God had told him. Third, this prophecy described what was going to happen to Judah and Jerusalem. When Isaiah lived, the Israelites were divided into two countries. And Isaiah lived and prophesied in the country to the south, which was called Judah, and he went also to its capital city, Jerusalem. And fourth, Isaiah prophesied during the reigns of these four kings. We'll say more about some of them in coming weeks, but for now let me tell you that this reference tells us that Isaiah had a very long ministry. He preached for about 60 years. He preached from about 2740, or sorry, uh, 2740 years ago, 740 BC, through about 680 BC. So God spoke to Isaiah about 3,000 years ago. And like I said, God revealed a lot of things that were going to happen in the future. And in our day today, many of the things that God said to Isaiah 3,000 years ago have already come to pass, although there are a few things that still remain future to us today. Now, that's a very short introduction to this great book, but I want to get into the meat of what Isaiah is saying here. So let's jump now into our first point. Our first point is this. Isaiah shows us the sheer stupidity of sin. Look at verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. God's got something to say. And God is going to make a legal declaration. And because what God says has legal implications, he summons some witnesses to come forward. And the witness here is creation. Now, this isn't the first time God told creation, come witness something. 
700 years before Isaiah wrote this, God had again called on creation to witness something. God had then entered into a covenant with Israel. God said to Israel, I will give you some land and a lot of blessings, but you've got to obey my law. And after God instituted this covenant with Israel, Moses stood up and he summarized the terms of the covenant. And listen to what Moses said in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. Moses said, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. Therefore, choose life that you may live. Creation was called to witness the covenant between God and Israel. And now, centuries later, God again calls on creation to stand as witness. Why? Because while God has been faithful to keep up his end of the covenant, Judah has not been faithful to maintain its obligations. This problem is described well in a parable found in Isaiah 5. Isaiah, speaking of God, says, My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. God says, Now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, it yielded wild grapes. See, God was faithful to Israel. God gave Israel his law. He put them in the promised land. He defeated their enemies. He gave them the royal house of David. He sent them his prophets. God lived up to all of his obligations. But Judah did not. Instead of bearing the fruit of righteousness God called them to bear, Judah produced something that was false and worthless. They broke the covenant, and they didn't just break it, they smashed it to pieces. So Isaiah 1-2, God says, Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. God had raised Israel like his own children. And yet, despite God's kindness to Israel, Judah has turned on him like a punk kid turns against his parents. It is an outrageous act of sinful ingratitude. And worse, God says, it's rebellion. It's treason. God's people are at war with him. We'll see the specifics of this in a minute. But the first thing God is saying in our passage is that this kind of faithless response to him is absolutely, mind-numbingly idiotic. You know, every once in a while, scientists try to figure out which animals are the smartest. And they say the smartest animals are dolphins and pigs and, unsurprisingly, cats. I love cats. Um, but you know what kind of animals aren't very smart? Oxen and donkeys. They're not getting a perfect score on the SAT, right? But even though oxen and donkeys are pretty dumb, they know this. They know who they belong to. But God says in this, these stupid animals are smarter than his people. Because Israel doesn't know what an ox or a donkey knows. Israel doesn't know they have an owner. They belong to someone. They belong to the Lord. And this stupidity is not due to a lack of intellect. It's due to the folly of sin. Sin clouds our minds and it makes us forget what we ought to know, right? Ancient Judah is not alone in this experience. Temptation and sin still make people stupid. 
They make us ignorant of reality. They blind our minds to what would be plain if we could see reality as it is without what temptation is doing to us. Maybe it's easy to illustrate it like this. Think about unbelievers. If they were not under the influence of Satan and the world system and the flesh, they would see the truth, which is that they have an owner. They belong to someone. Acts 17, Paul says that God, who made the world and everything in it, gives to mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. God made the world. God made all of us. And so God has the right to rule over us. We belong to God. And yet, what does the world think? Oh, well, you know, God's not there. And uh, life came from non-life. And uh, things came from nothing. It's nonsense. Sin has made them blind to what is manifestly obvious. But before we say, oh, foolish world, let's look at ourselves. Because if we're believers in Jesus Christ, this is even more true for us. Friends, 1 Corinthians 6 says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Jesus died to make us his own. And yet temptation and sin make us forget. They offer us false promises and false pleasures which make us forget Jesus and what he went through to save us and his right to rule over us and that we are called to obedience to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Sin makes us forget that obedience is how we show our love for Christ. Because Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. Sin and temptation make us forget how regretful we'll feel after we indulge in sin. They make us forget the pain of having to confess and repent. Temptation and sin hide all of that. They promise a good time, but they hide the hook. They hide the pain that they will bring us, and so we foolishly return to sin again and again. But if we belong to Christ, at least we have this promise, God will forgive us and sanctify us and grow us. But meanwhile, unbelievers don't have that promise. Instead, they're experiencing what Romans 1 talks about. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images representing man, mortal, mortal man and birds and animals. People think that they are so sophisticated and intelligent in our world today, but they have not seen what is obvious because sin makes people dumb. makes us dumb. It makes unbelievers dumb. And so what does God do with people who are persistently stupid in their rebellion? What does he do with societies that are persistently stupid in their rebellion? God gives them over to judgment. That's what Romans 1 says. And that's what Isaiah 1 says God did to the rebellious and foolish society of Judah. And that's our second point. Sin leads to the sorrow of judgment. God summarizes Judah's condition like this, verse 4. Ah, sinful nation of people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. The first word of this ought to be the word woe. That's how we probably should translate this. What this is saying is, is God is telling people misery and judgment are coming. And why are they coming? Because Judah is a sinful nation. Now that's a tragic thing to say about any society, but this is even worse. Because that word nation 
in the Old Testament is usually not used to describe Israel. It's usually used to describe the Gentiles. And so here's the issue. God is saying to Israel, you're acting like the Gentiles. You're acting like unbelievers. You are heavily burdened with sin. So just a minute ago in verse 2, God said Israel was like his children that he had reared up. But now Israel has become like their disobedient ancestors and not like the God who faithfully reared them. And now God says some things about sin that I think are really theologically profound. First, God says that sin is forsaking him, trying to run away from God. Now, you can't run away from God, right? But people try. People try, right? They, they believe lies, thinking, oh, well, if I just disbelieve in God, he can't get me. Or they try to obscure reality by giving themselves to drugs or alcohol or just endless sex to try and turn their brains off. Or they make excuses about their lives to say, oh, well, well, yes, that was sad, but, you know, that's not sin. Or they busy their minds thinking, if I just keep myself occupied enough, God will never have to deal with me. People try to run away from God. That's what sin makes people want to do. But second, sin also shows a hatred for God. Because it shows that we love the exact opposite of what God is. God is holy and loving and good, and sin is wicked and selfish and evil. And when we choose sin, we reject God. And because of the faithlessness and the hatefulness of sin, sin separates God and man. A, a separation that is as vast as the separation between life and death, Ephesians 2 says. And friends, we need to know this is our natural condition. We are born into this, enslaved to sin, hating God, trying to run from God. And those people who remain in this condition remain under God's judgment. God says, woe to them. And now judgment's going to come upon Judah. Three times in the Old Testament historical books, Judah winds up in a terrible cycle of sin and judgment. And Isaiah's book spans all three of these crises. It actually describes the first two of them because they happened when Isaiah was alive. The first crisis happened when Judah was invaded by an alliance of two countries the northern kingdom of Israel, and Syria. And this war doesn't go well at first, but the way it ends leads to a second and even worse crisis in which Judah was invaded by the worst and most powerful country on earth at the time, the wicked Assyrian Empire. And this second crisis was catastrophically bad for Judah. We're going to see how bad it was in just a minute because I think Isaiah wrote this first chapter during the worst part of this second crisis. But God graciously and faithfully intervened in the second crisis and saved some of the people of Judah. And yet, about the same time the second crisis ended, Isaiah reports that the king of Judah made some terrible decisions that would set the stage for a final disaster about a century later, when Babylon would come and totally destroy Judah and take her citizens into exile. So this book spans all three rounds of escalating judgment we see throughout the Old Testament, and here Isaiah speaks during what seems to be the very worst point in the second cycle of judgment. Look at verse 5. Isaiah says, Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They're not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. The nation's hurting and it's not getting any better. It's not healing. Every part of it's in pain because that's what God's judgment does. 
But instead of recognizing God's judgment for what it was, the country was in denial. And God says, how long are you going to ignore what I'm doing here? You're hurting because you're under judgment. Why do you continue to rebel? It's only going to get worse unless you repent. Because, well, how bad is it? Look at verse 7. God says, your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It's desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. The mighty army of Assyria has invaded Judah. It has overrun every city in the nation except Jerusalem. Every other city has been emptied of people because they're either dead or enslaved. Isaiah says it's like a lodge in a cucumber field. Say, what's that mean? Well, sometimes, even still today, right before the harvest, farmers go out and build a little hut for themselves in the middle of their field so they can guard the field, and when they wake up, they can get right to work. But after the field is harvested, what you have is just a big, empty plot of land and just the hut sitting by itself. I actually saw this once when I was driving through North Dakota, and it always stuck with me what a strange sight it was. And Isaiah says, that's how Jerusalem is. The rest of the country's gone, and Jerusalem's just sitting there by itself. The nation was almost totally extinct. It's like Sodom and Gomorrah. That's how angry God is. Friends, we need to know that God's judgment is no joke. You know, the first lie told in the history of the world was Satan denying the doctrine of judgment. And the reason for that is that if we deny the doctrine of judgment, we start to think that we can sin with impunity. We can get away with it. But don't be deceived. Judgment is real and it follows sin. God judges sinful nations like Judah here. And how does he do that? Well, about a seventh of the entire Old Testament prophetic literature talks about God judging nations other than Judah and Israel. And in those passages, we find that God uses nine tactics to judge nations. Natural disasters, like earthquakes or plagues, economic distress, a reduction in influence, civil unrest, fear, giving a country pathetic leadership, military defeat, exile, and total destruction. If you want references for these, I'm happy to give them to you. With all humility, I would suggest that most of these things should sound familiar to Americans after the last 20 or 30 years. After three economic collapses since 2001, in the middle of pandemic without end, in the midst of all the civil unrest and fear we see in society today. Is it right for God's people to see see this and say, well, nothing serious is going on, everything's fine, this is just an overblown political conspiracy, you know? Or should we say God is very angry at our sin? Let us humble ourselves as a nation and beg for God's mercy. The very fact that Christian leaders aren't using our circumstances as an opportunity to issue a clear call for repentance shows why God is so angry, I think. Because it's not just that our unregenerate society is in the thrall of sin, but that like Judah of old, God's people today are living like the world. We have adopted the values and idols of our culture. That isn't going to move God to mercy. The apostasy of his people is just going to make things worse. Judgment falls on societies, but judgment first falls on the household of God. And ultimately, judgment will fall upon people. Isaiah here speaks of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
kind of like the ultimate examples of judgment. And as he does, we need to remember what Jude writes about Sodom and Gomorrah in his book. They are an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And friends, that is where the path of unrepentance leads, a punishment of eternal fire. Friends, judgment is no joke. It is deadly serious, and judgment is where unrepentant sin leads. And so we see here that God has brought some really terrible judgment upon his people. Why? Why has God done this? Well, that's what we see in our third point, which are the reasons for God's judgment. Earlier, God said Judah was guilty of treason. How have they betrayed God? What specifically have they done that's so bad to deserve this kind of judgment? Well, before we get back to our passage, I want to show you five things God says in the rest of chapters 1 through 5 that will help us understand why he's so angry here. Let's pick up later in chapter 1, verse 21. God says, How the faithful city has become a whore, she who was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and after the widow's cause does not come, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Chapter 5, verse 23. Woe to those who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Jerusalem had once been a godly city, but now the city has disordered affections, like a prostitute. It has tainted itself with violence and corruption, and it begins at the top with evil leaders who satiate their greed by taking bribes. Allowing evil folks to exploit the weak and get away with it. How was this occurring? Well, when God gave Israel the promised land, he made sure every family had a piece of the land. Everybody had something. And if you fell on hard times, you could part with your land for a while to get some money. But God's calendar set dates when you could get your land back. Been in Isaiah's day, that didn't happen anymore. Instead, chapter 5, verse 8, God says, Woe to those who join house to house who add field to field until there's no more room. The rich are buying up all of the land of the poor and consolidating it into large estates to get more money and ensuring that poor people can't get their stuff back. Now you say, well, what's the big deal? We do that in our country all the time. Well, that may be how our economics work, but it's not how God's economics work. The poor were not to be squeezed into homelessness and servitude like this. God hated it. And so God says in Isaiah 5, 9, The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, Surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. Ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath. A homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. Judgment is coming for the rich and greedy. The wealth that they think is coming for them is going to dry up. And many of them are going to die, and they're not even going to be able to enjoy their big houses. The wicked rich who pay bribes will be judged. But beyond evil leaders permitting exploitation, some go further and actually commit exploitation themselves. Chapter 3, verse 12. God says, my people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. Society is no longer governed by godly men. In fact, in Isaiah's days, many of the men of society aren't leading at all. They've turned it over to women and kids. Now, in our feminist society, we hear that and think, well, what's the big deal? Friends, the Bible tells us God made men and women to be different. 
and God intended men to lead in the home and over the people of God. But over Judah, the men have run from their duties. And now rulership has fallen to women and little babies. Now, I love my son Joshua. He's very young. Um, and I have to tell you, I, although I love him, I think he would make a lousy president of the United States. Joshua would make everybody drive yellow cars and spin around very fast, and he would want to see a lot of explosions. That's not the sort of leadership you want in a country, right? Or in a church. That's not how God wants his people led, but it's what's happening in Judah. And as the leadership falls upon those who should be following, what happens? The new rulers are manipulated by an underclass of leaders and bureaucrats who use this situation to exploit the poor. So now the politicians aren't just enabling exploitation, they're perpetrating it, hurting those they ought to be leading with love. Does this sound familiar to us today? And I'm not trying to make a political statement, because I think the most on-the-nose application is, does this happen in the church today? Are there people who hold positions of power over God's flock who fleece their own sheep, who don't preach the truth and enrich themselves at the expense of their congregants? Absolutely. There are wicked and corrupt rulers, and God's going to judge them, just as he judged them in Isaiah's time. Second, there's widespread revelry and decadence. Isaiah 5.11. God says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. Verse 22, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. The people of God are conducting themselves like a fraternity party, getting wasted from morning to night, boasting in their cups because everybody's a hero in his own mind when he's drunk. And as they revel, they have ignored God and his word. Does this sound familiar to us? Our society revels in self-indulgent folly. Every November, we see more and more legalized drugs. Our most admired celebrities display for us lives of unending partying and sexual licentiousness, and the media says, that's the good life. Is that what we desire? There are many people in churches today who do, abandoning reason for self-indulgent folly. And God says, because of this, Isaiah 5.13, my people go into exile. Their honored men will go hungry. The multitude is parched with thirst. Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down. Party's going to end. Because you can't party when you're starving and there's no drink. You can't be a hero in your cups when you're marching off to exile. God says the only one who's going to stuff his face is death. God will judge self-indulgent revelry. Third, there is grotesque vanity and immodesty. Isaiah 3.16, the Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are arrogant and walk with outstretched necks, they glance wantonly with their eyes. God says that Judah is filled with arrogant, immodest women who present themselves as sexual objects trying to incite lust in men. This is an ancient sin, and it's a modern sin too, right? We have influencers and actresses and women who have discovered they can make obscene wealth by disrobing on the internet. And friends, this same spirit is in the church too. There are women who go on social media and present themselves immodestly, and then they put a Bible verse as the caption, like somehow that's going like, to sanitize the whole thing. It's absurd. Even in churches, where women come in dressed like they're going to a nightclub, like they want to pick up men in the church. Now, I'm not saying we need to dress like Puritans today, 
But the house of God is not a place to incite the desires of the flesh or to indulge in vanity. 1 Timothy 2 says women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control and good works. The people of God are not to act like unbelievers in how we display ourselves, men or women, or how we try to get others to view us. And this also God says he will judge. Isaiah 3.17, the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion. The Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, the pendants, the bracelets, the scarves, the handbags, the mirrors, and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of a well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, sackcloth, and branding instead of beauty. God says, look, if you want to expose yourself indecently, I'll make you exposed and indecent, all right. It's hard to look glamorous when you're enslaved. It's hard to look hot when you're in chains with a shaved head being branded like a cow. God will judge the vanity of society, just as God will judge the arrogance and provocativeness among his people today. Fourth, God is angry because his people have repudiated his call to live in a distinct manner from the unbelieving world around them. Isaiah 2.6, Isaiah says to God, You have rejected your people because they are full of things from the east and fortune tellers like the Philistines. They strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold. Their land is filled with horses and chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands. God said to Israel, be holy, be distinctive. But instead of living distinct lives, God's people were acting like unbelievers. Worshipping just like unbelievers did. Back then they bowed down to false gods, but they practiced other forms of idolatry that are more familiar to us too. Amassing wealth, amassing power, chariots and horses were the weapons of the day. The people of Judah were trying to secure their future by hoarding these things. Instead of listening to God's word, they wanted to hear from fortune tellers. Instead of spending time with God's people, they struck partnerships with unbelievers. They professed God but lived like the world. They did it then and we do it too. Friends, what are our priorities personally or for our kids? Do we have the same priorities our unbelieving neighbors have? Is our hope for the future built around our finances and our weapons and a ring doorbell? I'm not saying those things are bad, but they're not ultimate. What controls your future? Your finances or the Lord? What do you want most for your kids? The American dream or godliness? How should the church be run? like a business, or by being conformed to God's word. Beware, friends. Isaiah 5.21 says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. The world must not come into the church, and God's people must not live like the world. Fifth, God brings judgment because there is a total departure from the truth. Isaiah 5.18, God says, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who say, let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near. Let it come that we may know it. Then he says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. There are people who say they're proclaiming God's word, but they practice deception. They manipulate God's people who don't know their Bibles, claiming that God is for evil and against righteousness. It's true today like it was then. Friends, Isaiah's time is like ours exploitation and revelry and immodesty and worldliness and deception were running amok in society and among the people of God. And these things weren't some concealed issue. They were out in the open. Isaiah 3.9, 
says, they proclaim their sin like Sodom. They don't hide it. Woe to them. People don't even bother to cover up, their, cover up their sin in Isaiah's day. Just like today, people practice sin openly, without shame, defying God. No wonder judgment's coming. Now with all of that context, let's return to our passage and see what God says. Isaiah 1 verse 12. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. The people of Isaiah's day were engaging in all this open sin, and they're not even covering it up. And then they're going to the temple. Same people who were drunk or acting debauched the day before or stealing from the poor. They go to the temple, and they bring their sacrifices. Now, maybe you say, well, that's good. They're sinners. They need to bring a sacrifice. God will be happy with them. No, because they're playing a game. They don't come with sincerity. You know, God told me if I bring a sacrifice, I can get back to doing what I want. Is that how it works? Is God a sucker that we can play? No, that thinking is blasphemy. God sees religious forms being observed. Oh, there's some incense, and oh, the temple's full on the holidays, and the people are praying, but it's all fake. And God's not down with this. He's not blessing it. He's not impressed by it. He's disgusted, and he won't honor it. Because all of the religious forms and ceremonies in the world without an inner desire to honor God and love Him and obey Him are vile blasphemy. And we need to know this today. Yes, I am glad to see so many of us have come to church right after a holiday. And it's a good thing to come to church. But it's only good if you come with the right intention. If you are here to be seen or to network or to make yourself feel righteous without actually dealing with your sin, you are just trampling God's house. And He would say, who told you? That that's what I'm interested in. Who told you to come today? If we offer God the sacrifice of praise, or if we put money in the church, but we're only doing it because we think, well, if I just do enough of this, then God will be okay with my sin over here. If we're pretending to be rightly related to God, but we don't actually care about repenting or obeying Him, our false praise is abominable. If we take communion while harboring unrepentant sin, if we say, I'm praying, but inwardly we have a hard heart or an evil conscience, God isn't pleased by that. He's outraged by it. And friends, he will judge it. If you have questions, go read 1 Corinthians 11. Because God looks down from heaven and he sees blood on our hands. Friends, this is not a game. God is real. God is holy. God takes his worship seriously. And God is not mocked. And if we think that we even the scales or we appease God because I came to Sunday service or I prayed over a meal today, well, the rest of our life is in total opposition to him. We are tragically mistaken. And we can expect that what happened to the people of Isaiah's day will happen to us. Catastrophic judgment. Maybe in this world and certainly in the next. Because God does not want empty religious formalism. God wants us. Our hearts our lives, our affection, our sincerity. Jesus says in John 4, 23, true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is seeking such people to worship Him. 
God isn't impressed by a game. He wants true worship. He wants what David wrote in Psalm 51. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. God wants worship that comes out of brokenness and contrition, that recognizes the awfulness of our sin, that pleads for mercy, and that takes God at his word that there is a gracious pardon available. And that's what we see in our last point. God graciously offers an alternative to judgment. Judah has rebelled against God. They're experiencing terrible judgment. We've seen why that is. But as we come to the end of our passage, we don't just see God's wrath. We see God's immense kindness and mercy. Because God doesn't say, well, too bad, guys, you blew it. You're toast. No, what does he do? He offers a way out of this judgment. Verse 16. God says, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Now, as Christians today, we may see this language and be troubled. Can people wash themselves? Can we make ourselves clean by our own effort? Do we not need God to cleanse us through Christ? Of course we do. None of us can commend ourselves to God. It's Isaiah who warns us that apart from a right relationship to God, all of our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. But what Isaiah is doing here is he's not giving us a comprehensive theology about salvation. Instead, he's just making a very clear statement to the people of his day. Isaiah is saying, repent. See the awfulness of your sin. See where it has led you and turn away from it. And instead, turn to God in faith and ask for mercy. That's what Isaiah is seeing here. The people of his day need to turn away from all of this exploitation and revelry and immodesty and worldliness and deception and false religion. And instead, they need to live lives of justice and self-control, of holiness, godliness, and truth. Now, this is important. Hear me on this, friends. We may hear this and think, well, what Isaiah is saying is, God's just looking for good works. Judah's doing the wrong works. If they just do good works, everything's going to be better. That's not correct either. Because the sort of things God demands here are not the sort of works that the natural person can do. We cannot choose to love God or obey Him or walk in holiness and righteousness on our own. Such work can only be done when God changes our hearts. So the call here is not salvation by works, but it is for people to get saved, to repentantly believe. And then those who believe will in time produce in our lives the works that God desires. That's the idea. Now to make this point again very clearly, Isaiah puts the choice in crystal clear terms. God makes a clear offer. Verse 18, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. God invites Judah to reason, to think. I said earlier, thinking's hard when you're mired in sin. But God doesn't want Judah to keep acting stupidly. He wants them to see their situation clearly. To see, wow, judgment really is bad. Like, we don't want to keep going down this road. And to respond rationally. And friends, this is the same thing God wants for us today. Don't be deceived. See reality as it is. God is angry. God has a righteous case against us. But God is willing to settle his case. That's the idea here. The word reason here is a legal word in Hebrew. It means basically to strike a plea bargain. God says to Judah, here's option one. Plead guilty. Fall upon my mercy and you will escape the full measure of my wrath. Verse 18, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you'll eat the good of the land. 
The nation's sins are described as scarlet, red, and crimson, the color of blood, because there's so much wickedness and evil and violence in their culture. Blood has been spilled, literally and metaphorically, because of their sin. And so blood is required, because the wages of sin is death. It was true then, and it's true today. But God says, where you have harmed others, where you have incurred tremendous guilt before me that cries out for justice, I will transform you. I will make sure you no longer stand before me in guilt. I will forgive you. I will purify you. I will cleanse you. This is how the people of Judah are to wash themselves. They are to come to God in humility and ask for forgiveness, and God will graciously give it to them. What had been red like blood will be made pure and white like snow or wool through repentant faith, through a change of mind that leads to a change of will, that leads to a change of life. Judah needed a change of mind about who they were. They needed to see their sin as bad. They needed to see they were guilty. They needed a change of mind about who God was, that he is their Lord, their rightful ruler. And if they walked in repentant faith, God said, I will transform you and forgive you. You will again enjoy the land. The land was desolate. God says, I'll restore it. And I'll let you guys be blessed. That's option one. Take God's plea bargain. But if they didn't take option one, here's option two. Verse 20. If you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Continue in sin. Judgment will fall and it will be total. In the first five chapters of this book, Isaiah says this again and again. I'm not going to read all the references. But what I want you to know is this. In this passage, we see God's purpose for judgment and God's purpose for mercy. But where I want to finish today is this. For the people of Isaiah's day, they were told to turn back to God, to return to their covenantal obligations and that God would pardon them. And that's really a remarkable promise because in the Old Testament, usually all the sacrifices would do is cover your sin. They wouldn't purify you inwardly. How can God offer this kind of radical transformation? In fact, this isn't the only radical transformation God promises in the first five chapters of the book. We also read about the future of Jerusalem in chapter 2, verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills. All the nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. Out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. There's a promise of glorious transformation for Jerusalem and for the world, just like there's a promise of personal transformation in chapter 1. How can all of this transformation happen? We find the answer in chapter 4, verse 2, which says, In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. Here's how God is going to transform people. Here's how God, in the end, is going to transform this world. He's going to send the branch. This phrase, branch, is found in three of the prophets. And in each place, it talks about a king. We'll see this a few weeks in chapter 11. There's going to be a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. A king is coming. 
a descendant of Jesse and David, who is empowered by the Holy Spirit, who will rule forever and ever. This is the Messiah. This is the Christ. This is Jesus. And Jesus is the one who one day will purify this world and transform this world. And more than that, Isaiah 53 tells us, Jesus is the one who makes it possible for people who come to God in repentant faith to experience inward transformation. Because Jesus is the servant of God who suffered and died for your sins and mine. Isaiah 53 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so friends, for us today on this side of the cross, this is God's offer. Come, let us reason together. Let us depart from the ignorance and stupidity of sin. And let us see the choice that God puts to us with clarity. On one hand is the option of judgment. Societal judgment and personal judgment. Isaiah 1 ends with a warning of people burning with none to quench them. Friends, that is a terrible path. Do not choose that path. On the other hand is a promise of forgiveness. That our guilt and filth and the blood of those we've harmed can be cleansed from our hands. That we can be made white as snow. Because God sent Jesus Christ, the branch, to this world. He lived a sinless life we could not live. He died the death we deserved. He has taken our place, and he has now brings us back to God. He undoes the separation and alienation we have from God, and he brings us into a personal relationship with the Father. Friends, turn to Jesus in repentant faith and live. That is God's offer made possible because of Jesus Christ. May we listen to God, may we respond to his offer, and may we enjoy fellowship with God in this world and forevermore because of Jesus.